But lest you think infatuation is simply a harmless emotional game played by the young, consider the impact of infatuation during one of those seasons of marriage when life gets hard or dull and marital love grows a little cold. Circumstances, changes and mistakes add up to make relationships an enterprise of ongoing work. And when the going gets tough in marriage, the pain often seems to outweigh the rewards. You have your first child, then you have another one. You've got two kids in nappies, then you've got a boss who really pushes you at work. Or your babies suddenly hit the teenage years and life takes on a new set of pressures. You feel like you're expending every ounce of energy dealing with a rebellious child. Financial pitfalls and windfalls sew up at various times along the way, each having their own set of complications. Then when you hit the empty nest, you discover you haven't really cultivated and stoked the coals of your relationship. During any one of these predictable seasons in a marriage, the emotional parts of the relationship can feel weak and empty. Deeply committed partners who are Christians and love each other are not immune from such times. Even those in great marriages can be caught off guard by an unexpectedly difficult time. One of the side effects of stale times in marriage is vulnerability to infatuation. You're not vulnerable because you're a bad person. You're vulnerable because you're vulnerable. When feelings have temporarily dried up from one direction, it's hard not to pay attention to feelings coming from another direction. The following scenario can begin at any, almost any moment. A woman goes to a Bible study and on her way home she glances over and sees a guy in another car. They happen to pull into the same coffee shop. He gallantly opens the door for her and says, I dress great minds at work in the same way. Had to have my coffee. Their eyes meet. She smiles in response to the courtesy and the compliment. No big deal, but his kindness and her response indicates there is chemistry. The next week she finds that his office is in the same complex as hers because they spot each other on the way to their cars. He laughs and says something like, Don't I know you from somewhere? Race you to the coffee shop. Their eyes meet again. Comment sounds innocent, but to someone in a certain frame of mind going through an empty emotional time, it holds a promise of something nice. Now that woman is a wise Christian believer who knows Christ in a deep way. She inwardly reasons she would never do anything to jeopardise her marriage or dishonour the Lord. But you can also see the attraction of infatuation. She's vulnerable, lonely, feeling unappreciated at home. She's flattered by the attention, faced with the prospect of going home to a familiar coldness, the temptation of the unfamiliar warmth of the coffee shop and a kind stranger seem interesting. Convinced this could never lead to anything more than a casual friendship, the dance begins. What's happening is quite natural, which makes going through it unawares particularly dangerous. A similar danger awaits the man who's under a lot of pressure at work. Job security, mounting expense, growing and demanding kids that seem to consume his wife's energy and a marriage which has developed a dullness all contribute to his vulnerability. Can't remember the last time he made love with his wife. He's frustrated but doesn't know how to talk about it. He's buried the hurt and desperation down inside. Then he notices someone at work who really seems to be listening to him. She compliments his efforts, his skills and how nice he looks in that shirt, fluttering the eyelashes. He begins to look forward to spending his days at the office. He wonders if it would be appropriate 
simply as a way of saying thank you to suggest they have lunch together sometime. There'd be no harm in it. He's been a Christian for 17 years, served in the church and has three kids. He'd never let this friendship move beyond. And the dance begins. A great majority of affairs rarely occur solely on the basis of physical attraction. They usually start out with a little chemistry during a time of vulnerability. But families break up because very good, godly people simply haven't learned what to do in a situation where it suddenly feels so good to get some of that eros out. They confuse infatuation with love and make foolish decisions. Those apparently innocent and fun choices end up destroying children, breaking up a good thing that just needed some attention, and embarking on what turns out to be a painful series of shameful disappointments. How often does this happen? Just look at the number of broken families that you know personally. The life cycle of infatuation is 9 to 18 months. Then all those breathless and wonderful feelings leave, and you're stuck with another person with the same kind of needs you have. That person knows you can't be trusted because you left your last mate. You know you can't trust them because Dan thinks you're afraid of experiencing the kind of betrayal you afflicted on someone else, inflicted on someone else. What's left are two unhappy people struggling with character flaws. If you don't know the difference between infatuation and love, you'll destroy others' lives and your own. How did you grade yourself on the test of singularity? My son, those of you who know me, I was married some years ago to a beautiful girl um, and it's exactly the scenario that was written there. Uh, he worked in, in, uh, in the city and this young girl helped him out and as a matter of courtesy because he wanted to thank her, he took her out for lunch just before Christmas when he'd been married in the August. This young girl says to him with dewy eyes and fluttering lashes, I've been in love with you for a year. Sweet little canary. And he followed the sugar mouse, just hook, line and sinker. Broke the heart of my dear daughter-in-law and within six months the marriage was broken, they were divorced and my daughter-in-law now is the one that led him astray. But the fact is that she had a fight to keep him. And I had a spiritual battle to keep him on the rails when she was pregnant with uh, Connie. And I remember fighting in the spirit and telling Satan to get his hands off my son. Uh, I really went for it one day when I'd heard that she phoned me up and said he's, he's gone off with someone else. And he had looking 18 year olds now but by God's good grace we've got him corralled at the moment it's real you know I speak what I speak about sexuality from the place of knowing about it broken relationship myself um, marrying a man that I didn't really love didn't realise it Thought I was on the shelf, got married, 25 years later, I grew up, he didn't, all sorts of things. 
The test of security is test number five. Genuine love requires and fosters a sense of security and feelings of trust. An infatuated individual seems to have a blind sense of security based on wishful thinking rather than on careful consideration. Infatuation is blind to problems. He or she may have a sense of insecurity that's sometimes expressed as jealousy. Security grows and flows out of deep awareness of the other person's character, values and track record. You know who he or she really is. I mean, if I were now in the market, which I'm not, because the main thing you actually have to say is to the, to the father, do you want me married? Both Joyce and I asked that question of God after we came to the Lord and, and the answer for both of us was no. So then, you know, he'll grace you to live a celibate life the way he wants you to live it. When you meet someone who has left someone else for you, do you think they are going to stick to you? Answer, no, he's not. Because their track record is not good. Test of work. An individual in love works for the other person for his or her mutual benefit. By contrast, an infatuated person loses his or her ambition, appetite and interest in everyday affairs. A woman in love may study to make her husband proud. A man in love may have his ambitions spurred on by planning and saving for the future together. Partners in genuine love may daydream about the potential of their relationship that their daydreams are reasonably attained. People in infatuation only think of their own misery. They often daydream of unrealistic objectives and ideals that neither they nor their partner could actually ever attain. Have you ever been around someone who's terminally infatuated? <laughs> they used to get to work on time and they used to be very faithful. They used to be the kind of person who had a regular schedule and exhibited dependable behaviour. If they made a commitment, they meant it, but then they caught the love bug and everything changed. Suddenly they live in chaos. That's not love, that's brain damage. <laughs> Test of problem solving. A couple in love face problems frankly and try to solve them. Infatuated people tend to disregard or try to ignore the problems. If there are barriers to getting married for a couple in love, those barriers are approached and removed. The barriers that cannot be removed may be circumvented with knowledge. They do not go into marriage blindly. They handle problems with clear, shared decisions. On the other hand, friends, family and family may be astonished at the foolishness and blindness of infatuated people. This is where my story, I can so relate to this one. About four or five times a year I get approached by a type of couple I can spot now almost before they speak to me. They walk up wearing what I call the goofy glow. They're usually holding hands, tripping over chairs because they can't stop looking longingly into each other's eyes. We're in love, they begin. It goes downhill quickly from there. We met yesterday, or last week, or two weeks ago. God shows us we're meant to be together. Could you do the marriage? When? I asked, trying to work towards some sense of reality in the conversation. Tomorrow, this week, soon as possible, they respond. Uh, why then? How exactly did this come about, I asked. Well, she sighs. I dropped my purse and he picked it up and our eyes met. Then I found out his last name started with S. 
I've prayed for someone whose name starts with an S. So there we are. We know it's God. Before I can express my amazement, she babbles on. What's so incredible is, though, though he's 38 years older than I am, <laughs> I can't believe this, I've got this very thing myself. And I'm not sure if he's a Christian. God has made it so clear that he's the one. We don't have a common vision, but we'll figure that out later. I don't know anything about his family. Or he's been married 17 times, other than that he's been married 17 times. Ours will be a blended family because I have 11 children and he has seven, but we love each other and it will work out. I mean, you laugh, but I mean, I actually heard it this week. I said, get her to ring me, would you? <laughs> she hasn't yet. It's infatuation mixed with classic denial, with an added pinch of insanity. Such a relationship isn't based on communication, genuine knowledge, geography, core values, commitment or spiritual vision. In fact, these essential components, components are almost completely lacking or ignored. You say you love each other so it'll work out, but wait until you wake up and you realise that all you had was infatuation. Genuine love, contrary to popular belief, isn't blind. It sees very clearly. Infatuation, on the other hand, exists almost completely in the dark. How good are you and your partner at seeing problems and working on them? Do you find that you gloss over hard issues in your relationship or face them squarely? What obstacles and barriers do you and your partner feel good about facing and overcoming in your relationship? That's the test of problem solving. Test of distance. Love knows the importance of distance. Infatuation imagines love to be intense closeness 24-7 all the time. I often counsel those who are dating to go on a short-term mission trip or take on a project that will require them to work alone. If circumstances require you to be temporarily separated from the one you love, that will teach you a lot about the quality of your relationship. Test of physical attraction is a relatively small part of genuine love, but it is the central focus of infatuation. Now, don't read small part to mean not a part in what I just stated. If your heart doesn't skip a beat now and then, you don't feel really attracted to your mate or the person you plan to marry. I'd call that a problem. Let's not make genuine love so spiritual we deny reality and God's word. Sexual attraction definitely has a part in love but it's not when it's overstated he says we've been effectively brainwashed to believe that attraction is the surest test of whether or not we're in love actually when we're attracted to someone it doesn't mean we're in love at all it means the person to whom we're attracted is good looking there is a chemical response and something inside us goes, wow. I've already demonstrated that if we find four or five other really good-looking people in the same day at different times, we'll hear that same internal voice say, wow, to them too. That's not love. We're just exercising our unpredictable capacity for infatuation. Instead of recognising such feelings for what they are, people choose to get physically involved with people who are virtual strangers. The moment you get physically and emotionally involved, you will find your ability to think clearly and objectively evaporates. This makes for very unstable relationships. 
In contrast to this, that's the eros. Here's, here's the agape. People in genuine love aren't trying to get their own lustful fulfilment. Their words and actions tell each other, I have your best interests in mind. And of course he goes on to talk about how far can you go. Well, no, nowhere at all is the answer if you want to stay within the safe, safety limits. Um, because the whole philosophy of the world in which we live is sexual. Have you noticed that they use sex to sell cars, sell aspirin, you name it? Everything has got a sexual connotation to it. Hence the boy who looked at a square around and a, and a triangle and puts a sexual connotation on it. Everything. Because why? Because Satan knows that's where he can get you, in your lust area. And he'll go in there and he'll take from you. You're being robbed. The test of affection. In love, affection is expressed later in the relationship, involving the external expression of the physical attraction we just described. Infatuation Affection is expressed earlier, sometimes at the very beginning. Affection tends to push towards greater and greater physical intimacy. Without the control of the other aspects of genuine love, affection spends itself very quickly. It gives the appearance of making the relationship close, but the closeness is artificial and fragile. I was reading another book yesterday because suddenly I seemed to have all the information I need at my fingertips and this girl had actually stayed a virgin um, and had still not met the person that she was to marry. And she had this, this guy in the office who was, a, I can use the expression, a good leg over merchant and he boasted about the number of girls he'd had and then some time later he rang her and um, she was speaking of another colleague in the office. He said, you know, I slept with her and I can't even remember her name. And she said at that point, she was just so horrified and so grateful that she kept her virginity because she thought, if it's that casual, that he can't even remember her name. She said, I thought it was something that was important and special and to be kept for one, you know. And she realised how right she was about keeping herself. Uh, even if we have given ourselves away, there's no, no reason why we shouldn't stop now and not give the box of all sorts to anybody else, is there? Keeping the licorice all sorts for myself. Test of stability. Love tends to endure. Infatuation may change suddenly and unpredictably. Infatuation. In infatuation, the wind blows here and, and you're in love. The wind blows there and you're in love. Not so with real love. Real love is stable. There is a commitment, uh, which is a word we don't like these days. So stability and commitment. And finally, the last test is delayed gratification. A couple in genuine love is not indifferent to the timing of their wedding, but they do not feel an irresistible drive towards it. An infatuated couple tends to feel an urge to get married instantly. Postponement for the infatuated is intolerable. Why is this? Why wouldn't a couple wait and do it at the right time in the right way? Why wouldn't they want to deal with the real issues so they could have a solid marriage? 
These questions reveal the difference between love and infatuation. And in fact, he now goes on to talk about Amnon and Tamar, who I spoke about there. Amnon represents a guy who couldn't wait. He had a case of consuming infatuation. He was obsessed with Tamar. When he took by force what he thought he wanted, his love vanished like smoke. He couldn't wait, and it spelled destruction in his own life as well as Tamar's. What about Jacob and Rachel? He worked seven years for Rachel and then got Leah for his trouble. And he worked another seven for Rachel. That's love. As you enter a potentially serious relationship, ask yourself if your pace is based on, in fear or faith, is your pace based on anxiety over deprivation and physical drives, or is your pace the result of a desire for careful and thorough preparation for marriage? And maybe you've answered some questions on that. Take a break for a sec. Okay, right. What I put up there is, um, you know, so often in the Christian walk we have words that we use and we don't really understand what they mean. I asked someone the other day, she said, I've been to conferences and conferences and conferences and, and she said, I've repented and repented and repented. So I said, what do you mean by repent? Well, I've told the Lord I've done something wrong. She said, I said, no, sweetheart, wrong word. That's confession. That's agreeing with God that you've done something wrong. Repentance is changing your mind. The reason there's no lasting change is that you haven't changed your mind. You're still travelling in the same direction. So maybe some of you, through hearing the truth today, are actually changing your mind about the way that you thought about things. So you're repenting, and repentance should actually be a way of life. I was actually very thrilled to hear someone say, I am so angry. I said, you want to give testimony to that? She said, not yet, I'm not angry enough. When I get real angry, then I'll... Because there was a realisation of the robbery that was taking place. And Satan's just having a game with us, you know. He's just having a game with us. So I'm going to start my notes now, which may or may not fit in with everything else that's gone, but I felt the Lord wanted me to do those 12 love tests first, so that you could hear how stupid it sounds when you stand from a little way back. I have to say, I understand. When I was still married and working um, um, at, at Bexley there was a man who courted me as the, the word would go uh, and I held out I would not jump into bed with him because I've never done that sort of thing and I wasn't about to start well this went on for I don't know three months maybe held out for three months and then finally I committed adultery with him and he said you've held out longer than anybody else and I thought, give me a break. Mark the woman, you know. What sort of an idiot am I? So. I'm going to try to do No, I can't do that. So there you've got repent and confess, and now you know the difference between the two. So if you've done something naughty, you need to confess it. 
And then you need to change your mind so that you don't do it again. Or at least you try not to do it again. The grace of God is always there. Just want to look at um, relationships Hollywood style. Thank you. So step one, find the right person. So you're always on the lookout, aren't you, for someone. Step two, fall in love. You find yourself strongly attracted to people who are practically strangers and you stop your ears to warning bells. Step three, fix your hopes and dreams on that person. Spend hours in fantasies. Well, you can read, I don't need to read it for you. Step four, fail. Start all over again. So you're always on the lookout. God's style, God's model. Instead of looking for the right person, you become the right person. Instead of falling in love, you walk in love. Instead of fixing your hopes and dreams on another person, set your hope on God and seek to please Him through the relationship. And if failure occurs in the relationship, you repeat steps one through isn't it interesting that to move through three? That the, the, the fourth step is the same, but for radically different reasons. The question is, am I walking in love or am I walking in eros? Am I walking in agape? Am I expecting something from this that they can't possibly give me? You're setting yourself up for defeat. This could be said to be a word to the wise. We've seen these before, but they bear showing you again. This is the law of sowing and reaping. Mm-hmm. Okay, not that one. It's not just a quick leg over and that's all there is to it, you know, going away. You've got something deposited in you and so is he. Because all the people you've ever been with, if you haven't had the soul ties cut, he's got a dose off. And vice versa. Heard the saddest thing in the week that's uh, He's a florist and he's homosexual and uh, he got annoyed about something and he phoned me the other day, I've never met him before and he asked me loads of questions. Do you live in a big house? Uh, Oh, sort of. Uh, Have you got a garden with a pond in it? Uh, Yes. Um, Are there horses, are there ducks on the pond? Uh, Yeah, from time to time. But where's this going? (laughs) He was trying to establish whether I was the person he thought I was and it turned out that he'd got a complaint about one of his people that used to work for him and he was giving me an earful um, but as God would have it though I, kn- I knew his lifestyle I was just gentle with him because I knew that he didn't know any different from what he was saying and how cross he was getting and I just tried to mollify him and he said you're very kind can I come and see you and I said, well, I don't really think that'd be a good idea, dear, because we're Christians, you see. We've got different values. Oh. And off he went. I found out afterwards he'd been harassing this particular person and the police had to be called because he'd 
got a bee in his bonnet and he'd be, but the awful thing is that he's just been diagnosed with AIDS. I thought, oh, it broke my heart. There's always something. We get a deposit. Sexual union is an act of worship, either to God within marriage or to Satan outside. And we are not primarily sexual beings, though Satan would have us think that we are. My existence doesn't revolve around my genitalia. <laughs> it never did. <laughs> this lady, the book I was reading about being single and enjoying it, she said the key for her to staying celibate was, was living in community where she'd got something to occupy her. The more idle your mind is, the more the devil will make the work for your mind and your fingers, you know. Whoops, Daisy, that's a crooked it? You told me it was crooked. So here's a, here's a godly union, you see, because it's an act of worship. So you know all that. So we're not going to do the other one, are we? Okay. So, here we go. So I want to ask you to do a rethink and maybe rewrite yourselves, having heard all that. What do you think being a Christian is all about? And uh, I'm on my notes now. If this teaching doesn't challenge you, bless you. If it does challenge you, bless you. Either way, be open, be blessed. And as you must have gathered, I had a charge to speak about morality today. Um, it wasn't my choice. God came at me all of a sudden and said, I want you to speak on morality, and that was it. And what you've heard and the fresh bread that you've actually had this morning is the result of that charge. But we need to come at the subject. Um, the, the title of this should be The Bride Has Made Herself Ready. The bride has a responsibility, girls, to get herself ready. And that is why teaching is coming across. Some of you weren't here, I don't think, when I spoke about Graham's word. Part of his word was, it is the word and the spirit that enables self-government to occur. For I was saying, everything has to be brought under. Anything that is unsurrendered, unsurrendered desires will lead us into trouble because they're ungoverned desires. But the Word and the Spirit enables self-government. And he also says, it's so critical for people to align with the truth as part of their fellowship with the Lord. Our circumstances, not meetings, become the essential training and proving ground of our freedom and maturity. What we receive in a meeting has to be established in life. This is exciting. We get to develop a powerful relationship with the Holy Spirit who is so enthusiastic about mentoring us into becoming Christ-like in our day-to-day -day life. But it is the truth that will set you free. It's the word that will set you free. It is not impartation and ministry. They will do a, a, a little bit of it, but the truth will set you free and keep you free. Power gifts will release you into experiences of freedom, but the Word and the Spirit enable self-government to occur. 
maybe sometime I should teach on the role and function of the Holy Spirit in these days because this is absolutely essential that you develop a relationship with him. You will not get through it otherwise. So that we can develop a present future mindset. Paul said, didn't he, I'm, I'm not what I was, but I am what I am by the grace of God. It's the grace of God that will keep us. So, have a charge to speak about morality. But unless we come at this subject, and indeed the holes of the Sermon on the Mount, God's rules for a righteous life, from the point of view of much-loved children, Christ charged, Christ's childlike bride, obeying the Father because we love and are loved, we will chafe against these commandments, not suggestions, and compromise ourselves. And our old nature will rebel against what it sees as constraints upon its freedom in the 21st century. And we will do a trade with the devil. We will walk as close to the line as we can. When we looked at homosexuality, we saw that God created male and female and his intention was that they would become one flesh. You've just seen the uh, diagram on the soul ties, husband and wife. Sexual contact, contact outside of the confines of marriage brings you straight into Satan's territory. The sexual act is an act of worship, either to God inside marriage or to Satan outside and I'm going to use uh, the out-of-fashion word sin to describe anything outside of God's created order. A definition of the word biblically is to miss the mark. It's an old archery term. You know, if you've got your target and you let your, lose your arrow and you miss the mark, you miss the centre. So sin is literally, it's called katar in the... Uh, Hebrew, I think it's C-H-A-T-A-H, is missing the mark of God's standards. And there are two other words which are used. Transgression, which is rebellion, deliberately stepping over God's stated commands, and iniquity, which is lawlessness, wickedness, and contempt of the divine law. But for today, sin is the one that I want and I'm going to use. And if uh, it offends you that I use it, I apologise, but I'm going to use it anyway because the Bible does and God does. And one of the dangers today is that we can be lulled into thinking that because God loves us so much, we can do as we like because grace will cover us. Now, as I said earlier, this is true, but there is something more at stake than our salvation, if you like because that's not at stake at all. We're okay with that. God is not going to stop loving us no matter what we do. What's at stake is whether you have this sort of return, which is the undeveloped fruit, or the hundredfold. You get to whoops, choose which you would like to be. 30, 60, hundredfold. And you know the yield has to do with the soil of the heart into which the seed goes. If it goes into the soil of a heart that is not really loving God very much, it won't develop, and you'll get the undeveloped Christ life. That's what that is. The fruit of the Spirit's never been allowed to develop. The fruit of self-control, 
love and self-control bookends. We're doing self-control and bookends and through to the Spirit on Wednesdays. It's possible to be like the Israelites and drink from the river and die in the wilderness. We can do that. We take ourselves out and we take ourselves out from under God's cover and we don't bear fruit like we should. Farmer wouldn't have been very pleased with that undeveloped pears on there. This one, of course, took all the nourishment from the tree uh, and grew. We have divine seed within us. It will either come up like this, which is the underdeveloped fruit, or this one here, or somewhere in between. 30, 60, 100 fold, it said. You get to decide whether you're going to be a 30, a 60, or a 100 fold Christian. Me. I'll have a hundredfold and then I'll have a hundred on that double portion. Paul says in Romans 7 7, and I've got a revelation on this, I've never understood it really before, when he said, I would not have understood, I would not have known sin without the law, and I've never been able to understand that before. And suddenly, Romans 7 7, I saw what it meant. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. And I suddenly realised, if the law hadn't been there, if, if God hadn't said, don't covet, do not commit adultery, I wouldn't have known these things were sin in his sight. So without the prohibition, he would have been ignorant that what he was doing was sinful in God's sight. So because adultery, fornication and sexual perversion are seen as sins by God, we must have a look. Because we may be ignorant that what we're doing is actually sin in God's sight and needs confession. Remember the two words? Confession and repentance. Two completely different things. Repentance is ongoing. Because what I thought I understood last week and what I got involved in last week, I probably can't get involved in this week because I've now got light. And I'm a very silly Billy if I have got light and I walk in darkness because my darkness is very great. It's very silly to do that. Uh, and those of you that don't know me, when I was saved, I heard an audible voice of the Lord. I've heard it on a number of occasions, not many, count on one hand. Um, I heard something the other night and I've forgotten what it was. But I wrote it down in my journal. It's gone from me for a minute. Oh yes, thank you Father. What I heard the other night was that the forerunner speaks to the heart. And I spoke to the girls about this on, on Wednesday. That forerunner spirit speaks into the heart of issues. It doesn't faff around on the outside saying they, they shouldn't do that. Tut, tut. Go straight into the heart of the issue because it's a John the Baptist anointing, if you like. Prepare you the way of the Lord. It's what we're doing here. Preparing the way of the Lord. So when I was saved, I've been saved a few months, I think, and I just spent the night with my boyfriend who hadn't come across, by the way, by going to bed with me. I couldn't understand that. I was saved born again, baptised in the spirit and didn't know that what I was doing was wrong. So God had kept him from me this particular night and I went into the little church near where I lived because I was having a puzzle. 
And I just got down on my knees and an audible voice from somewhere over there, very loud, said, Go woman and sin no more. I didn't know, I thought they must be in the Bible somewhere. I didn't know at that point what they were and that they were spoken to the woman caught in adultery. I would not have described myself as being in adultery. That is what I was in. So as I prepared this talk, I became even more aware of what he was talking to me that day, 20 years ago or more. So I know that about which I speak. I was an adulteress, and now I understand exactly what that means. And you also need to know that from that moment on, I was adulterous no more. Because when God speaks, something happens. So Matthew 5, um, 17 and 18 just do this little bit and then we'll break for lunch. Sermon on the Mount. Brilliant. We should do something. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Because we come at this from a, from a Gentile mindset, from a Greek mindset, we probably don't understand what he's saying there. He actually said, um, I didn't come to set aside these things. I came to fulfill or to misinterpret these things. You, a better translation would be to say, don't think that I came to misinterpret the law or the prophets. I didn't come to misinterpret them, but to correctly interpret them. And then he says, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one of the tiniest little marks of the Hebrew alphabet. I wanted to try and get hold of a jot and a tittle, and I couldn't. So I have tried. will pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And in Matthew 5.27 he says, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that anyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. The eyes are involved and the heart, and later he involves hands. And the uncompromising words of Jesus give no room for manoeuvre. As I said, he said, I did not come to destroy, do away with, incorrectly interpret the commands of God I came to fulfill them to correctly interpret them for you his intent was not to weaken the word but establish it he's saying my aim is to establish the word and cement it in your hearts he's no intention of abolishing or suspending the law of commandments of God and for many Christians this actually comes as a shock because after all, Romans in 10.4 says, Jesus is the end of the law. And Jesus' statement seems such a contradiction that many Christian commentators have tried to explain it away by suggesting that his words didn't mean what they seem to mean. But his words are very clear. He says, as long as the world lasts, not a jot or a tittle, the smallest letter of the alphabet, not a jot or even its decorative spur, the tittle, will disappear. Matthew 5.27 You have heard it was said, you shall not, but I say to you, it's a matter of the heart. 
and the you includes rich and poor, educated and uneducated, king and slave, male and female, young and old, married and unmarried, no exceptions. So I'll stop there because if I may, I want to just go into this afternoon, what is at stake when we do something that we shouldn't? Thank you for listening. Have a nice lunch.